Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favourite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, as you may recall, we asked poets to select a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss, along with one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Sophia Sinclair, whose honors include a Whiting Award, a Metcalf Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, an OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Poetry, and a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Sophia, the poem you've decided to read for us is From the Desire Field by Natalie Diaz, which was published as part of Envelopes of Air, our online feature by Natalie Diaz and Ada Limon. It was our first interactive poetry feature at NewYorker.com. Tell us what drew you to this particular poem as you were perusing the archives. This poem is, to me, so magical in its imagery, in its texture, and um, the way she builds not just a system of imagery, but like returning to this refrain of green and desire. Let's hear it. Uh, Here's Sophia Sinclair reading from The Desire Field by Natalie Diaz. From the desire field. I don't call it sleep anymore. I'll risk losing something new instead. Like you lost your rosen moon, shook it loose. But sometimes when I get my horns in a thing, a wonder, a grief, or a line of her, it is a sticky and ruined fruit to unfasten from, despite my trembling. Let me call my anxiety desire, then. Let me call it a garden. Maybe this is what Lorca meant when he said, Verde, que te quiero verde. Because when the shade of night comes, I am a field of it, of any worry ready to flower in my chest. My mind in the dark is una bestia, unfocused, hot, and if not yoked to exhaustion beneath the hip and plow of my lover, then I am another night wandering the desire field, bewildered in its low green glow, belling the meadow between midnight and morning. Insomnia is like spring that way, surprising and many-petaled, the kick and leap of gold grasshoppers at my brow. I am struck in the witched hours of want. I want her green life, her inside me in a green hour I can't stop. Green vein in her throat, green wing in my mouth, green thorn in my eye. I want her like a river goes bending, green moving, green moving, fast as that 
This is how it happens. Soy una sonambula. And even though you said today you felt better, and it is so late in this poem, is it okay to be clear, to say, I don't feel good, to ask you to tell me a story about the sweet grass you planted and tell it again or again until I can smell its sweet smoke, leave this thrashed field and be smooth? Well read. Thank you. That was From the Desire Field by Natalie Diaz from Envelopes of Air by Natalie Diaz and Ada Limon, published on NewYorker.com in May 2018. Hearing the poem, uh, everything you said was, of course, quite accurate about it, its music and imagery. I was struck also by its language, or should I say languages, the way it really moves effortlessly between Spanish, between high language, and, and I wouldn't say low language because everything is so grand in the poem. I think that's one of its strengths. But in a very uh, human, you know, lustful way that I think is really great. Uh, let me call my anxiety desire then. Let me call it a garden. And then she brings up Lorca, who, you know, has been hovering over the poem, but suddenly she lets Lorca in. Tell me about hearing it again, what comes to mind. I do love this bodily tension in the poem, you know, and how the physical is always there and it's so reflected in the lush texture of the work, you know, that yeah. it's kind of like a vine. I imagine it as like a vine, the way that the lines sort of intertwine with each other and we come back to this refrain of green of which is of course the Lorcan influence right yeah. from his own um poem sleepwalking, sleepwalking ballad. yes yeah and so i i agree that it's so seamless the way she sort of loops in this idea of, of the desire to Lorca and this um this this refrain of green how i want you green yeah which you know one of the great lines uh, in poetry, and I, I think she manages to make it feel, and I, I've seen this in others of Natalie's poems, that they, they manage to bring in the world and other artists and other artistry and, and into the fabric of the poem. And I feel like that way about Spanish. It's not like Spanish is outside the poem. The poem is is multilingual. The poem is announcing itself as uh, thinking that way. And how do you read that i mean you read it beautifully <laughs> but how do you understand that i mean it's it's reflecting her own world and her own body um and you know i think it's really done um in a way that i think includes the reader whether you are you know you know what this means or not you know and i think that's what a good poem is supposed to do to sort of say this is a window into the tongues I speak into my body, into the lyric, you know, interior of my mind. Um, and it's something that I think Natalie Diaz does so well. Um, and I agree that her poems really hold so much of the world in it. Sometimes it feels like it holds like all the wisdom of the universe and all the matter and dust and stars and like <laughs> the trees and the thorns and the grasshoppers. Sure. It's right, all included right. in here. And, and I love these. Uh, wisdom is a good word because she's able, I think, in this poem specifically, but in others of her, her poems, to say these truths. Insomnia is like spring that way, surprising 
and many peddled. I mean, what a beautiful image. And and it's sort of turning insomnia on its head, as mm-hmm. it were. It, it's trying to make us think about insomnia. You know, I would write an insomnia poem like, this is bad. You right. Know? <laughs> <laughs> I can't sleep. Everything is terrible. Yeah, how can I get a poem? Instead, it's like, it's like spring. Beautiful, right? Yeah. And th- in the same way, I think that she's sort of turning this idea of anxiety mm. on its head and say, let me call my anxiety desire then. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of taking this idea of one thing and sort of completely turning it on its head through um, this really beautiful extended metaphor and like imagery that is to die for, really. Dream walking imagery. Yes. And this idea of let me call it a garden, you know, that fruitful quality that the poem is thinking about, I think is really interesting. I'm also struck by the sounds, you know, some of what you've said, I think, is to help us understand the way that language is a bodily thing and it's embodied. And in the poem, she does that, I think, wonderfully through just visually uh, looking at it now. You see plow and glow and brow, you know, and and these words that are both, you know, uh, full rhymes, but then also visual rhymes. And I, I think there's something in that that's really striking. Yes. And to really lean into that is something that I find very pleasing in poetry, you know, to not really turn away from the the formality of going towards these rhymes in the middle of Mm -hmm. of the poem Mm -hmm. um, is so lovely. And the music of the poem, it just undulates in this, in this way that then to me reflects this like field and garden imagery you know, yeah, that she's absolutely. also invoking in the poem. There's two things I would I would also have us think about. One is the form of the poem, which is, as you said, has a refrain, uh, the green that appears. And then it also has this wonderful sort of indentations that I think think about that music in a, in a way. But I was also struck by something we were talking about before, which is the refrain and the, the form makes me think of a ballad in a way. Um, though I'm also aware that these are letter poems. Yes. Yeah. So wh- what about that so it tension? All, it all, it's an epistolary in some sense. Like the yeah. you addressed is Ada in the, in the, in the letter. Right. Um, but it also does have the music and refrain of, of the ballad of the coming back to yeah. um, the longing for. Mm-hmm. I, what I love about a ballad is... Uh, in the traditional sense, they start with a refrain that repeats at the end and, you know, you've had all these things happen and it's utterly different. It's the same words, but the experience is very different the second time around. And I feel like Green does that sleep, does that in the poem, but also this idea even of the you yes. who who is addressed, you know, the you becomes not the beloved, which right. is, uh, it was, you know, like very fascinating too. Although it it could also be the beloved in you know, sure. there in some moments where it's so tenderly mm. um, rendered. I think of it as a kind of confessor or yes. a confessed to, but which of course is this intimacy. Yes, I think intimate is a good word. The way that we do have these very tender confessions, really about um, the the interior life of the poet and mm. um or the speaker we, we the speaker <laughs> yes as the we speaker, always pretend as we say. <laughs> <laughs> that they don't um, those written by someone who isn't a person um, right. but no I, I think it's right, there is know? that little interesting yeah. gap that i think the poem is also playing with like 
I'm speaking to you, and the you is the reader, the you is the listener, the you is the overhearer. Right. Um, and the I kind of is the this figure, the balladeer, who isn't quite the same. You know, there's a kind of risky openness that I think the balladeer <laughs> commands. I am struck in the witched hours of want. I mean, geez, like go home. Yes, you know, like, the well, end. <laughs> <laughs> that's yes. like in the gospel church, you get a There's... shoe thrown at you for yeah. singing so good, you know. <laughs> I know. And it, there is so much singing, right? And And just right after that, you know, where she goes on this extended refrain of green, mm-hmm, green, mm-hmm, green. Mm-hmm. I think it reaches that like fever pitch for me in the poem. You know, I want her green life, her inside me in a green hour. I cannot stop. Green vein in her throat, green wing in my mouth, green thorn in my eye. And there the punctuation goes all away. Yeah. You know, and to me, that that moment when I first read this poem, I was just like, okay, <laughs> scatter my ashes, you know? <laughs> I'm dead. I, I love this part where, too, that when it says fast is that this is how it happens and you get the spanish soy una sonambula mm-hmm. uh, my spanish is not as good as yours uh, but you know there the person is the uh somnambulist uh, yeah, a sleepwalker. sleepwalker but i think it couldn't be said any other way no you, you know like there's no and that's what makes a good poem right. of course but Of course you had to go away with the punctuation, of course. And these are things that I think sometimes when we're studying poetry or writing it, you're like taught not to do. Like be consistent. Don't don't, uh, (laughs) confuse the readers. Like please confuse me. After that part, I want to be overwhelmed and and, and taken there. I mean in a poem, all things should be possible really, Mm. right? In the world of the poem. Um, And I feel that way here. You know, we even begin with, we'll change our thinking about what sleep is and anxiety and desire. And, you know, I am the field, I am the garden. Um, Is really, I think, expanding the possibilities not only of language and body, but of what can happen. Yeah, Uh, it's well said. I mean, I think... The poem is a site of transformation. Absolutely. And and that transforming power uh, comes from many ways. And here it's thinking about form, thinking about other poets, a dialogue directly with another poet, but also with us. And I love that sort of give and take that a good poem provides. Yes. Well, speaking of good poems, in the July 2nd, 2018 issue of the magazine, The New Yorker printed your poem, Gospel of the Misunderstood which we'll hear you read in a moment. Is there anything you want to say about it first, anything you think listeners should know or think about before going on? Well, I wrote this poem when I was in the like thicket of a Floridian jungle <laughs> um, at, the, at this place called the Atlantic Center for the Arts. Um, and it really did feel like it was a jungle, you know. There were co- like you would walk through, and there would just be cobwebs. You'd take them down, and you'd walk through again, and the cobwebs would come back, you know. Right. And it just seemed... do you like cobwebs? Is that no? <laughs> I don't. And like, this was outside, you know. There was everything was bursting and blooming, yeah, sure. which is very much like the the landscape of Jamaica. But um, this sort of then sort of crept into. <laughs> my mind and my body and the poem. Okay, let's hear it. Gospel of the Misunderstood. I want to be the blade striking knotted brown, to kiss the nape of any hunger, 
American beauty berry or rutted cane, warm branch of man pinning me here in mute study. To be an ache in the breast of a burst jelly is what I wanted. Vine slick and torrid in summer's greed, pressing my fears against the light of the lonely. Nameless, I haunt for God and love in extinct places, curve myself inside desire's eye and drink. All peeled vermilion, all caught promise. Again, all seeing and finally, to be seen is what I wanted. To trawl the sleep of his body, to make a burning room of this mouth, skinned eager with spider bite and holy, split pink, drunken, choked quiet, as life unfolds its sticky wings in me, snuffing me sweetly. Isn't this love? To walk hand in hand toward the humid dark, enter the ghost web of the hungry, to consider some wants were not meant to be understood. Some women. The way my brother prays, I'll still find a man to divine me, and my father tells me lazy women will never be loved. Like today's new trumpet pushing its bright flower in my slutty way, the slow voice of its angel hissing breathless. No, he is not here. He is not here. He is nowhere. That was Gospel of the Misunderstood. By- I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate minority leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's the speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Sophia Sinclair. 
I was struck hearing it again, those uh, two parts of the poem, um, which we had talked about yes, before the did. poem <laughs> ran. I love that it's in two parts still, but um, how do you see the two parts? And, you know, I know sometimes you had thought of it as one, but there seems that big leap to me. Isn't this love? Because the beginning is almost this private uh, desire that the speaker has that then later in the poem, the brother or the father says something else about. Mm-hmm. Well, I I went back and forth between having it all be one or having this separate because that isn't this love to me was always like a turn where the poem sort of expands or or I'm sort of turning the gaze to myself. And I wondered, well, is it too obvious if I make the break here that this is a break and <laughs> so, you know something is sure, turning sure. or... Is this the way it should be? But then it felt natural that it should be this way. Well, that's how you read it, I, I feel. Yes. I mean, this might be going down a little bit of inside baseball, as they say. But, you know, editing is such an important part of a poem. <laughs> I know you know this, but, you know, I think sometimes people think, oh, poems just come to you. Right. And I've there they are. <laughs> from, from the gods, yes. <laughs> and this poem has that quality of... Uh, organic quality in the mm-hmm. beginning, but you can also tell it has such control, which I admire very much. That moment where you say, to be seen is what I wanted, to trawl the sleep of his body. I mean, I love just that as a line, you know. Um, how do you compose uh, something like that? Did it come in this way, or did you? No, it didn't come in this way. Um, you know, I think that I had to move some of the lines around um, in this the the first stanza because I wanted this sort of accumulation of imagery and texture to reflect, you know, not only the landscape that I was living in, but also how I was feeling, mm-hmm. you know, inside. Um, <laughs> you managed to, I think. Um, and I also wanted to to maintain, like, it looks good on the page. It <laughs> looks sort of intentionally this way. Mm. Um, and so... I moved things around and took things out. Um, you know, the maddening work, mm-hmm. right? Where <laughs> it's like, should it be an egg or the egg? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I try to stop. Yes. People sometimes ask me, like, when do you know a poem's done? It's like, when I'm changing the to, to uh, uh, like, or it's and. ready. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I'm just moving around, you know, uh, furniture. When, you know, you've built this beautiful yeah. house. Well, I think the, the core of it really came, it really sort of, fevered itself um, forward in this way. And I knew this is how I wanted it to end. And so did you know, too, well, I mean, I love this moment where it's like today's new trumpet pushing its bright flower. Great. And then in my slutty way, like this this kind of judgmental quality. Um, did you know it would have that or that that surprised you? Yes, I knew. Um, because, you know, the poem is talking about desire and sort of wanting, 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 wanting everything mm. um, to sort of hold <laughs> the whole world inside, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and it's also about shame then? Yes. In a, you know, in a certain kind of way. I mean, not necessarily internal shame, but being no, shamed. Being shamed, right, for particular desires, right? That sort of maybe women aren't supposed to have or mm-hmm. like you shouldn't articulate 
your desires. You should <laughs> 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 just wait. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but the line where my father sort of comes in, it actually used to be before lazy, I had loose women. My father tells me loose women will never be loved. Um, and then I sort of changed that because it, I, I don't know, I, I felt like it was better to articulate the idea in a different mm-hmm. way. To, um, to, to, I mean, that could make it more obvious, right. but also take it away from the subtlety that I think you're trying to capture, Yes, which is judgment, but also, I don't know, something... Ownership. Is, ownership. I like that. Well, it leads me to another question, which is, who are the misunderstood? Who are... Who? Who are? Or who, is, who is? Who be? <laughs> who be the misunderstood? Um, I think... Uh, for me, I wrote it in a moment where I felt misunderstood and I felt that like my femininity or womanhood was misunderstood, not just by um, the sort of lover in the poem, but also obviously the other men in the sort of orbit of my life. Um, and so it was like a moment of of being misunderstood sort of linked to different lifetimes of misunderstandings. Yeah. Know? I mean, that's. I think that's my other question: is, is it women who are the misunderstood in this poem? Yes, I mean, I think so, absolutely. I, you know, I wouldn't want to speak for all women, but um, I definitely think that myself, I was misunderstood, and and also other women who might also feel the way that I feel. Well, it has these wonderful echoes. I think the light of the lonely isn't this love. As life unfolds, it's sticky wings in me, snuffing me sweetly. You know, there's a lot of tension in those lines. Uh, choked quiet. There's this kind of um, tension and it's almost an allergic quality yes, <laughs> reaction yeah. to this giant uh, green, as it mm-hmm. were. But there's also this uh, reaching for it. Yes. Um, definitely reaching for... Um, I think all the dan- the dangerous aspects of nature, mm-hmm. right? And um, I wanted to sort of explore the sort of discomforting aspects of desire, mm-hmm. you know, and also the reflection of that in nature, that it's all, you know, it's beautiful, but also like, there's some killer spiders out there. You know, like cobwebs. Cobwebs <laughs> belonging to killer spiders out the window. Well, um, and I love this idea you say, which I think comes back in the end. Nameless, I haunt for God and love and extinct places. And then at the end, you have this angel who speaks. And so there is it, it's a desire that's a sort of earthly desire. Uh, a na- nature desire, but it's also bigger than that yes. too. It's a it's a God hunger. Yes, it's 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 a and being disappointed. <laughs> Fascinating. So tell me about that ending then, the slow voice of its angel hissing, breathless. Um, so I, you know, it was playing on this idea of, like you said, this God hunger and and searching for something. In this case something heavenly or religious or or some something bigger that is then this crushing disappointment of no you know it's not just will the earthly corporeal desires be 
met? Will this hunger be met? But also this other like ethereal mm. desire. Will this be met? All these answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's no. Mm-hmm. You know, he is not here. Um, not just a man that will divine me, but also the divine yeah. is not here. Well, it's interesting because it's also called the gospel. Right. So there's there's a lot going on yeah. in this <laughs> this gospel. And I wonder how this speaks to others of the poems you're working on now. Uh, this is a newer poem? Or, this is new, yes. Yeah. So tell me, you know, do you feel like you're, you're thinking about these things? How do they uh, compare in terms of form with this poem? Um, I think this was a new kind of form for me. Usually I have more breath in the poem, um, the way that I structure the stanzas. And I sort of let this one be a thicket of itself, you know? And um, yeah, I think that's something that I'm pushing towards. Like the poem doesn't always have to be a terse set or in couplets, you know? Like you can. What? <laughs> you're, you're messing my life I up. I know. Because <laughs> I love me a terse set and a couplet. Yes. Um, so you wanted that impacted, as I you said, thicket. That. Yeah. And is that something you said you're working on now uh, as a form in general or, or a voice? Or? Maybe more of a voice, you know? Mm-hmm. I sort of move more thematically with what, you know, what I'm working on and this one was written in the heat of the moment Mm -hmm. you know as they often come Mm -hmm. um and so uh the poems i'm working on now are more considered and not as (laughs) in passionate anger (laughs) (laughs) well everyone is now eager to hear what these other poems i'm not going to get it out of you today oh yeah i can tell you what the other poems are about tell me a little bit just a little little and then i want to maybe zoom out one last question about jamaican poetry in general absolutely um i'm working on um poems about sort of incorporating rastafarian linguistics you know which i call rasta poetics because rasta in jamaica we have like jamaican patois but rastas also have their own um vernacular which i grew up with and so i'm sort of incorporating this um through a bunch of uh, reggae songs Mm. and trying to insert a kind of womanhood in the rasta rebellion this sounds powerful and exciting thank you (laughs) how's it coming it's going well it's going well good and uh, do, am I right? I'm not sure if I have it here, but you have a memoir? I have a memoir coming. A memoir? A memoir. <laughs> yes. So tell me briefly about the memoir. It's called How to Say Babylon. It's, again, about my childhood growing up in Jamaica. I grew up in a very strict Rastafarian household, and um, I was always questioning mm. um, and asking, you know, why are the rules of Rastafarianism or Rastafari different from me than they were from my, my brother and my father. And um, that was not really well received. And so, you know, there was a lot of struggle and tension between me and my father. And so um, I'm really exploring that relationship and my family sort of growing up as my siblings and I growing up as sort of oddities in Jamaica. I mean, Rastafarians are actually a persecuted minority in Jamaica historically, which most people don't really know. Um, and so we were like the only Rastas in school, the only Rastas like in the supermarket. Um, and so it was this strange kind of way to grow up, you know. Um, and did you have locks? And I had dreadlocks. I had to, I had all these Do you rules. still have them? 
Kevin, no. <laughs> some of us let have, them go. Some I still of have them, mine. Some I still have mine. That's all I'm saying. Throw them away. Like <laughs> I still have mine. I find it so morbid that you still have them. <laughs> I, I work in archives. I love archives. But so. you you decided to grow them, right? It yeah. was your choice. Sure. No, so, I'm, I'm not equating that yeah. by any means. So this my is why dreads I, grown know. in the 90s. <laughs> So but mine were long. I, they were long, you know. I bet. But I didn't keep mine because for me, cutting them was like a a liberating act, you know. Was it uh, emotional? Very emotional. Yeah. I can only imagine. It I mean, it was emotional. for me and I, you know, it wasn't a religious uh, decision. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. letting go of them was part of that, I'm sure. Yes. It, it was sort of be- part of becoming myself. Mm-hmm. And so the book covers this. The book covers this, yeah, covers. So, um, you know, I'm talking about Rastafarian culture and Jamaican history, but also my own family story in, in Jamaica and my relationship with my father, who's, you know, a strict reggae musician, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a Rasta man. That's right. Yeah. The last question I had is then about when did you come in this journey to poetry or was it always there for you? You know, it was there for me pretty early on. And because of how I grew up, you know, I grew up in the in the household where I was always kind of silenced. I really turned to myself and I turned to the page. And that's really why I started writing poetry, because I found that there I could express myself and I could really cultivate not just a self, but a world that I felt at home in. And that's, you know, it started, you know, maybe 10 I started writing these poems. That's amazing. Uh, and let me uh, end by just thinking about Jamaican poetry, which yeah. I think of as a really rich tradition, both in general and especially right now. There's a lot of folks writing. Yeah. Do you think of it that way? Or how do you do you see yourself in that pantheon of exciting Jamaican writers? Well, I don't know if I could say I see myself in the pantheon. But, you know, I think so much um, exciting work is being written. And I think... Um, Jamaicans, you know, I'm biased, but we're very good at pretty much all the things that we do. So I'm very proud <laughs> okay. of my fellow, I'm proud of my fellow <laughs> Jamaicans for what they're doing. Right. Um, no, I mean, because Jamaica really holds such a a broad space in the cultural, global imagination, sure. you know, for such a small island. Um, in Patua, in Jamaica, we say we little but we talawa. You know, it means we might be small, but we could move mountains. We could do it all. That's right. That's right. Well said. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been really a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Gospel of the Misunderstood by Sophia Sinclair, as well as Envelopes of Air by Natalie Diaz and Ada Limon, can be found on NewYorker.com. Natalie Diaz's most recent collection is When My Brother Was an Aztec. Sophia Sinclair's latest book, is cannibal. Thanks so much. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rope-A-Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman.
Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.